This morning we're counting down, if you would, to uh, Easter coming, and I'm trying to cover a lot of the subjects that um, happened in the final few days of the life of Christ. Last week we spoke about Judas Iscariot, and we found out some things about him uh, that maybe you knew, maybe you didn't know, but I got an awful lot of uh, nice compliments on some of the thoughts that people had didn't realize was part of his life and his walk with Christ. But now uh, uh, we see what his role was because of the Word of God. And now we're going to look this morning on Jesus cleansing the temple. Did you know he did that? Did you think he got mad? Was he upset when he did it? All right, well, we're going to find out a little bit about it from the Word of God. And so um, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 56, we'll look to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, anoint the message this morning, that, Father, that we might deliver it in such a way that it brings light and liberty to those that uh, want to understand the truth of your eternal Word. We need to even know, if you would, the attitudes of Jesus Christ so that as we cross over into the same territory he crossed through, we can do it with a proper attitude and take advantage of the fact that he's walked before us and set the example that we need to be to be the child of God you want us to be. So help us this hour and guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to read one verse in Isaiah 56 and 7. And then it'll make a lot of sense when we get into what Christ did later on. But there's a lot of background we need to know uh, before we uh, say some things or do some things in the service about what Jesus was doing in the cleansing of the temple. You know, a lot of times people react to certain situations because of things they've been through before. Amen? Let me give you an example. If your neighbor had a mean dog and every time you walked in his yard, he bit you, what would you do the next time you was going to the neighbor's place? Oh, you'd be aware of the dog, wouldn't you? All right. So you have to understand a lot of things are set up based on what took place prior to that and set up a lot of things. Um, if you had a, a house you was renting to somebody and every, every time you wanted to collect the rent, they were another week late. <sighs> I gotta go collect the rent again. And wouldn't you rather have somebody that paid it a day early? Wow, see? So sometimes the scenario behind it is uh, kind of forms your thought pattern as you go into things. In Isaiah 56 and 7, Isaiah's got an issue here that he's dealing, or God's dealing through Isaiah with the children of God or the Jews in that day and time. Let me read verse 7. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Now this is kind of a spiritual speaking thing. Who, what's the holy mountain? Jerusalem was the holy mountain. What was in Jerusalem? The temple. Where did everybody go for the Passover? Every year. Jerusalem. For the Passover in the temple, and and uh, what was happening in the in the temple in a lot of cases in the Old Testament or even in the lives of the Old Testament people, God wasn't happy with. But He says, "I'll bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer." 
their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Now I have to tell you, God wasn't always happy with the children of Israel from um, the Old Testament standpoint as from when they, uh, well, basically you can go all the way back to Abraham and come all the way up through the 12 tribes of Israel, through their trip through Egypt and the slavery and their uh, crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness and then into the promised land finally and eventually by the time you get to King David there's a, a temple in Jerusalem. All right, and I'm going to prove that as we get through into the scriptures here a little bit more. But Isaiah here is warning the people. God is heeding the warning. God's people that are heeding the warning that the prophet talked to them about that their worship to God was not pleasing in the eyes of God initially. When Isaiah started writing, he had some things he needed to say to them. Actually, he prophesied that all of Jerusalem would fall to a man named Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Of course, history proves that out, but Isaiah prophesied that that was going to happen 150 years before it did. So here we have this prophecy, if you would, coming through, if you would. I don't know how soon God would have allowed the Babylonian captivity of his people take place had they not turned around and tried to do better under the warning that God gave Isaiah. Amen? So you need to listen to when the, the preacher preaches, he's liable to save you some headache into the future. Not because you listen to me, because you listen to God. Amen. All right? So God sent these stern warnings about their worship behavior and uh, impending capture by the Babylonians if they didn't straighten up. But the scripture tells us that the problem wasn't the worshipers. It tells you in verse 10, I didn't write it down. I don't know if Mike wants to scroll down a couple of verses or not. The problem was the watchman. And the watchman is the pastor or the prophet or the teachers or the people in the temple were not making the temple available, if you would, to the people. The people wanted to worship God, but if you got bad leadership or they don't work it right, the people are going to say, ah, why bother? So it appears that the people had a heart to worship, but the, le the leaders were out of step with God. Now that can happen from time to time, and I take that charge very personal. I want to see that the focus of God's house is on God led by the two witnesses. Who are the two witnesses? His word and his spirit. Everything you do in worship to God needs to come or have a background or a solid foundation based on what his word says and what the spirit says to your heart. Amen? You don't have to listen to me unless I'm listening to them. Amen? Now the old saying is you can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. All right? Now, as I look at the church in America in 2022, I see so many talk Christian talk, but they don't walk the Christian walk. Again, I have to wonder, where are the watchmen? Where are all those that claim they know God and want to lead the people of God? Amen? 
Maybe they're focused more on numbers rather than worship. I think the churches today have become more on entertainment than they are on solid, true worship of God. Amen? Respect for his house is key. It's essential if you're going to worship God the way he wants you to worship him. When I say the house or the temple of God, it means two different things. Number one, the house of God is the building where we're at. But number two, you're the house of God that he's building when it speaks of it spiritually. Amen? So when it talks of that, uh, go over in your mind. I'm just going to flip and read it to you real quick. But in your mind, um, it's in 1 Corinthians 6 chapter. But I'm coming back to the Old Testament before I go any farther. But in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Michael, probably find it before I do. What? No, ye not. Your body. What's your body? That's what you look at in the mirror before you came to church. You combed it and shaved it and washed it and cleaned it and painted it and whatever you did. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. If you're a Christian, the Holy Ghost lives right inside this body. Huh? That's what the word says. Which is in you, which you have of God, ye are not your own. You thought you owned yourself, didn't you? You just got to pay taxes on it. God owns you. Amen? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. Amen? So when we talk about a temple, or we talk about a building, or we talk about a house referring spiritually, he's talking about that thing you carry around with two shoes or less. Amen? Your body. That's what he's talking about. Amen? So when we get to that text, and then we um, look at the text in Isaiah, where God was pleased with the worship, uh, there in verse 7, and he said, I even accepted all your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. What does that mean? There was forgiveness for the people. That's what sacrifices were for. The shed blood of those animals was to roll their sins, if you would, one year forward. Now they looked at it a little bit different, but we learned that from the New Testament as to why Jesus Christ came. Only Jesus Christ can remove sin forever. The animals could postpone it for a year, but again, at the next Passover, they had to do it all over again. Amen? Another lamb, here we go again. Notice the last line in Isaiah 56 and 7. It says, for, what's the word for mean? Because, amen? Because my people physically, or my house, physically and spiritually shall be called a house of prayer for all people. You know what? Whether you're in the building here or whether you're at home, when somebody needs prayer, they should be able to call on you or me. Or they should be able to bring that request before the church in the church 
house, if you would, because the house of God is for all people. It's to be prayed in for all people is what Isaiah said. And here in this topic that we're talking about in the, the house that he's speaking of, he was probably talking more of the temple physically than he was necessarily the spiritual people because the Holy Spirit had not been given yet on that side of the day of Pentecost. Remember that line I just read to you because that's going to come into play when we talk about Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, he says, because my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Amen? So, and now... Turn over to Jeremiah, the seventh chapter. Okay, it's only 18 pages in my Bible, but it's 110 years between the two texts in history's time. Amen? But there are warnings in this one that Isaiah um, has already come to pass, but Jeremiah's got something else he wants to talk about on this particular subject. Uh, read it with me in Jeremiah 7, verse 8 through 12. He says, Behold, ye trust in... That's not the right one, is it? Find the right one. Yes, say 8. And behold, ye trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal? Will you murder? And commit adultery? Swear falsely? Burn incense unto Baal, Baal's the devil, and walk after other gods whom you know not, and come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations. So all week long, you live like the devil, and you come to church, act like nothing happened. That's what happened in Jeremiah's day. Amen? All right, now I'm in verse number 11. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? He said, you go out and steal all week long, then come to church and act like you really belong here. Well, that's if you're doing that, you're making this house a den of robbers. Amen? What you do all week, should be the same as you do in the house of God. Or what you learn in the house of God, you should do all week, right? Of course. He says, Behold, I have seen it, saith the Lord. But go now unto, unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did for, for the wickedness of my people, Israel. He said, let me give you an example why I don't want you to live like the devil all week long and then come sit in my church and hide, if you would, your true identity from the people that you're worshiping with. He said, it's just like what happened in Shiloh. What happened in Shiloh? Oh, that's an interesting story. Well, I'm not going to get into it all together per se, but in uh, verse number... Uh, 12 there where he says, uh, well, in my words, check out what happened to Shiloh. Now Shiloh at one point was the central focus or the central worship place of the Israel, children of Israel before Jerusalem was established and the temple was built. Amen. When they first came into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, 
and they wiped out all their enemies and set up a camp, if you would, gave the land to the 12 tribes of Israel all over what today would be called Israel or Jordan. Uh, those that people then, they had a worship central area because it was important to the Jews to have one because they had to come once a year to the what? The Passover. They had to go through the Passover to stay in tune with God. God required it. On the month of Abib, first month of the year, they came together and for a week all of them went to church and stayed there for a week, basically. And so the, in that Passover week is what they're talking about. And what happened to the one in Shiloh? Hmm. Because the people quit paying attention to it, God said, I'll just do away with it. Eh, would have been nice. You see, they're bragging right now in Ohio, and especially in the Columbus area, that just east of Columbus somewhere, they're getting a place where they're going to build semiconductors. Did you hear that news? It's going to hire about, I don't know, 10,000 people or something. I don't know what this figure is. I don't. It's going to cost 70 trillion, trillion, billion dollars to build this place, and they're all bragging about it. And how would you like to be in the neighborhood where that's going to be built. Man, look at all those jobs that's going to come to Ohio because of all. Isn't that great? You how many states would have loved to have that in their state? Well, maybe, maybe not. Because if all of it brings in is high-paying jobs and it ruins the community around them, maybe it wasn't the best thing after all. Amen. I remember when they talked about building the Miller Brewery plant in Trenton. Man, they were saying, oh, and I heard even, this is true, the Christians in the church. We worshiped that point in Sharonville, and there were people that worshiped with us that lived in Trenton. And they were bragging on, man, I can't wait till Miller Brewery builds that great big plant. They're going to hire thousands of people, and it's going to have, did it? They wasn't thinking about the product they were producing. They were looking at the economic advantage. That's the way sometimes people look at it. Well, that might be the way some people even look at church. Huh. Well, we can cause the house of God to become a den of robbers when we shift the focus <clears throat> of anything to being anything other than Focus on worship for God. Could be money. Could be pride. You know, I've seen a lot of people come to church and they left because it didn't get their way. And then I've seen that people that uh, come and they just wanted to cause division. Now, they didn't come with that intention, but because they couldn't get over sour grapes, they just left and went their own way, had their own thing going on somewhere else. The problem is the den of thieves that scenario follows them wherever they go. Amen? I would think if you couldn't get along with Faith Christian Fellowship people, you're going to have a hard time finding a church to satisfy you. Amen? Well, there's a lot of things going on. A lot of people don't like the worship style, maybe. Churches today offer two services to try to appease the crowd. They call one of them the traditional worship service and the other one's a contemporary. You heard those terms? 
I have no idea what a contemporary worship service is. I know if I was supposed to speak two services back to back, I'd probably need two more gallons of water to drink because my throat would be so dry. And to me, it'd be boring to hear it a second time. But whatever it takes, um, they're just trying, if you would, to satisfy everybody. Seems like the older folks like the traditional and the younger folks like the traditional. Hey, come here. We got it all. Amen. And if you don't like the way the music's going forth, hey, sing yourself. Step up. Amen. I had one lady that did leave our church because she said she didn't like the singing. She told me that she had been, in her younger years, a trained singer. She had trained voice, been to voice class or whatever, you know, got a Ph.D. in note C, I don't know. She knew how to sing everything. And I said, well, man, you're depriving us with that beautiful voice of yours. You're depriving us of getting to hear that. I said, why don't you sing for us? She said, well, I need time to practice. I said, how much time do you need? <clears throat> she said about, excuse me, <clears throat> her voice was bad as mine. But uh, never mind. But she said about three weeks. I said, I'll put it on the schedule. Three weeks from now, I want you to sing for us. And she came in, got up here, laid her music out, went to singing, and I've heard cats on the... Never mind. And she was so embarrassed by how bad a job she did, they left the church. Oh, isn't that a shame? I would have rather she never sang or waited till she could sing or whatever, but I'd still rather she sit in the pew even though uh, things didn't work out the way she thought they should. See, sometimes... You need to make sure you're right before you start pointing fingers at what someone else is doing. Amen? So whatever they want to do in the way of having services uh, that uh, uh, seems to be uh, right for them, if they want a traditional and a... To me, that sounds like division. I, I think that's fresh groundwork for a division right within the own church that they've got. And I believe God wants his people to worship him with a true heart and not in some particular style or not in some particular tradition that men think of as being best. So, um, I, for example, I think you should praise God with two hands, some people would say. Some people, well, I think one hand is good enough. And for us fat, lazy people, we don't even bother raising our hand. That's too much work. Amen? I don't know what the right way to worship in the service is. If you want to raise two hands and uh, one foot, that's fine with me. Just do what you think God would be praised by in your efforts. Some think that you should stand while you sing. And of course, us lazy guys, we'd just soon sit down there and, and sing a little off key if we have to, but that's a lot of work to have to stand. Yeah, I'll stand if you want to stand. Amen. Whatever it takes. Some think you should bring a Bible to church. Some think, ah, we'll just let Mike take care of all that, and I don't even need a Bible, and probably couldn't find one at home if they wanted one. But after all the churches um, that nowadays have these big screens or whatever, for the comfort of you, people just get lazy. They don't even... 
I don't need a Bible. I, I would rather you bring a pencil and paper, even if you didn't bring your Bible, so you could write down. Of course, we have room in the, the bulletins for notes or things and uh, prayer requests. If someone has a prayer request, I don't know about you, but if I don't write it down, somebody's going to have to remind me in about 10 minutes. Because a lot of times I got so many wheels turning up here between these two ears uh, that they get kind of rusty and, and crowd, crowded and I can't remember all that. But if I write it down, oh, now I got it. Amen? So I just want to tell you, personally, this is dude. In the last 70 plus years of church attendance, I've had a whole gamut of different styles of church services that I've attended. But for me, the best style is the one that I feel welcome in. I have visited churches, and you've heard the testimony, probably not just from me, but other people, went to church there, sat down through the whole service, service over, got up and walked out, not a person spoke to you. Not a person shook your hand. Not a person said, glad you're here. Not a person even made eye contact with them. I've been in those services once. Does that tell you something? Amen. The, the truth of the word God being preached is, again, something that I'm interested in. But again, I want the people to make me feel welcome while I'm doing it. Amen. I think the house of God should make you feel welcome if the Spirit of God is there. Amen? Amen. Now, I know that uh, worship is important, but on the other hand, good singing can set the stage for good preaching. Amen? I think it takes a little bit of effort for somebody to sit through a worship service and hear what this message was on and then match that with a good older song especially since they didn't know what I was going to preach on, if they can match what I said with a good older song that allows the Holy Spirit to talk to hearts on the subject that I preached on. Amen? So there's a lot of good things that need to be done to put worship in the right place uh, for what God's trying to accomplish in things going forward. Now, I think singing's even important to God. Even in the Old Testament, all the way through the Bible, there was singing in all their worship services. Singing probably means more to some people than uh, uh, even uh, the preacher pre uh, preaching. But uh, I got to tell you, I don't think uh, singing can trump the inspired word that's preached um, under the Holy Spirit's leading. In my opinion, I've been uh, an average preacher but I'm a blow average singer. So we just have to do the best we can. Amen? Now, that's an assessment of worship that I've had over the years. But did Jesus say anything to us about worship? Yes. Turn with me over to John, second chapter. John is talking about Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. And uh, he's picked out his disciples, and, and he's starting to get things rolling the way it should be. Um, I don't know. At this point, we're thinking maybe Jesus is somewhere in the 30-year range, 30 years old. But the Scripture tells us in Luke 2.41 
that his parents took him to the Passover every year. So now Jesus has gone to the Passover at this particular portion of time um, every year for 30 years because his parents took him as a boy and right on up. Now he's a man. In verse 2, I want to read verse 13 down through 17. Let's see what he has to say. And the Jews' Passover was nigh. It's that time of year again. Amen. Almost spring. Amen. It's that time of year. And it says here that Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a small scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money, the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house a merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written that the zeal of my house has eaten me up. Well, here he comes into town. Hmm. I got to tell you, did you know there's two times that Jesus cleansed the temple? This is the first one. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. The other one is in the final week of his pass, uh, after the uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He cleanses it a second time. And of course, that would be the last time he would ever be in Jerusalem because they're, they're not going to let him leave Jerusalem after that. So here we find that this first cleansing of the temple, this is actually three years before the second cleansing that takes place, if you would, on Palm Sunday. You know what that is, don't you? Palm Sunday, that's the triumphal entry. Now verse 13 says, The Jews' Passover was at hand. It's time. Jesus went to Jerusalem, just like every other year. Now if Jesus makes a 90 mile trip to go to a church service he's got a little bit invested in this he wants to have a nice church service amen how many thousand furlongs is that 180 well that's 90 miles both ways brother amen so Jesus made this long trip he must have had some type of expectations in his thinking about that, what that service should look like. And when he walks into the temple, hmm, verse 14, he says, And he found in the temple, oh, those, who are those? Yeah, we know who those are. It's they, it's always they. Amen. They're in the temple in verse 14. He found those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money sitting. Hmm, I don't know whether that's really the right place for those people to be sitting. So, I'll take that as they were the ones that were more interested in doing business in the temple, and their thoughts probably weren't so much on worship 
in the temple. It was important to have people that sell sheep and oxen and doves and all that. Well, that was important, but not in the temple. That's not where that should have been taking place. I don't know about you, but when I come into the temple and sit down, I don't want to have the, the odor of sheep and cattle and oxen and birds and everything else in the temple for me to put up with while I'm trying to worship and praise God. Amen? So we here we have... It was important that they sold these things, but they should have done it outside the temple or in the town or somewhere else, just not in the temple. And it was also important that they had money changers. You know what they did? What were money changers for? However many, how, how many of you ever left the country, went to another country where they didn't recognize dollar bills? Bonnie and I went to Japan, and we had to take all of our money have it changed over into Japanese money. You go to Canada, they want Canadian money. You know, you go to Mexico, they want Mexican money. Amen. If you want to go to Washington, D.C., they'll take anybody's money. <laughs> but this is what the changers want. There was a certain temple tax that everybody had to pay. And they wanted it in temple tax money. So they had money changers that if you were from the other side of the Jordan River or you were from Nazareth or wherever you was from, their money, they would come down and the money changers would exchange that money for you. Of course, they, they kept a percentage for the, the efforts of changing it over. Then you could pay your temple tax because you had temple tax money to do it. Money changers, I don't know what they call them nowadays, but it's some kind of a ritual they go through. And then when you go home, if you had some left over, Stop by the table there and have it converted back into your country's money when you go home, right? Well, that was important for them, but I don't think it was all that important that it had to be done in the temple, amen? The temple, Jesus says, is for other purposes. And he said to take them hence and, and don't make my father's house into a house of merchandise. Verse 15 in that particular text says, and when he'd made a scourge of small cords. Now, what does that mean? What is a scourge? Well, it's basically, we would think of it as a whip. You know, something you would drive animals with. You slap, uh, you know, if you're driving horses or cattle, some people can snap a bull whip. You do that around a horse or a calf, they, that gets their attention real quick if you're good at cracking it. So here the same thing is true. He made this scourge. He made it. He didn't bring it. He didn't know he was, this is what, if you would, he was going to do when he got there, so to speak. But he made it, and then he put it in action. Amen? So when he did it, he drove them, the scripture says, all out of the temple first. He drove the people out first. And then the scripture said, did you notice that? He drove them out of the temple. And sheep and oxen. Yeah, he drove the people out first, and then he took care of everything else. And then the, the, the money changers, he upset their tables. Wow. And as he was doing this, he told them what was going on in verse 16. And, he, and we need to, uh, he says, take, take these things hence. Now the dude version would say, get out of here. I'd be a little more blunt, I guess. Maybe not 
make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And that's the scripture we read from the Old Testament. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think Jesus was upset? I believe he was, well, we'll call it righteous indignation. We don't want to say he was mad. But he had righteous indignation over what he found in his father's temple. And so when he comes to verse 17, as the disciples were with him, they remembered what had been written. Well, where was it written? Ah, that's what I read to you from Isaiah and from Jeremiah about what should take place in the temple. So it, it says, uh, the light bulb goes off. They remembered some things that in their past studying of the Old Testament things, they saw where God said, that's not true worship and I don't want that in my house. And it says there that they remembered uh, what was going on. Of course, um, it was written in Psalms uh, 69 and 9 that the zeal of the house, of my house, hath eaten me up. I'm not going to turn there, but that's what it says. Now, now, what happened when the disciples came in? Did they do anything? Were they herding sheep? Did they do anything to the oxen? The doves, they had any part of that? The only thing I can picture in my mind was when he upset the, the money changer's table and the money went flying. I imagine Judas Iscariot thought it was his job to help clean up. I don't know. We found that out last week. He wanted to get his fingers on all the money. But... Uh, other than that, I don't see any action from them other than they took note. Say, ah, oh, the Bible does tell us about that. Amen. Well, in my many years of church attendance, there are quite a few of them that are stuck in my memory. I have been to a few church services, not a whole lot, a few that I'll never forget what happened in church that day. I can about imagine for every Passover after these, especially this one here, that the money changers and those that sold the animals remembered what happened when Jesus came to Jerusalem that time. Now he had done it three years before and back then, everybody was in the temple. Now it seems like some of them weren't, but uh, the rest of them were there. And here we find that uh, sometimes, because what I saw, the zeal of the Lord of hosts consumed me when I was in that service that I saw something that I knew was not worship and should not have been in the house of God. Amen. I was in a church service where they called the police to come and escort a man out of the service. Oh, and I thought he was probably the most spiritual guy in the building. And of course, history proves that to be true. Uh, but nonetheless, he wasn't causing any problems. But because he wasn't agreeing 100% with some of the other things that was going on, they called the police and had him taken out. Hmm. I still remember that service. Now it's 45 years ago. Wow. And then I've been in some other services where people cut a shine. I can say it that way. I guess you know what I'm talking about, don't you? They showed their real true self in the service. 
causing problems and speaking louder than they should have and different things. But I'm thankful. There are very few and very far between that those services take place. But I'll bet you they all remember the day Jesus came in the temple and said, get that stuff out of here. This is a house of God. This is not a place to run a business. Amen? So uh, all of those things that going on, uh, Jesus probably left that in their mind. Now let's turn over again to the one that takes place in the final week of his life in Matthew 20. This here is after what we call the triumphal entry. Matthew 20, verses 10 through 17. Maybe I won't read it all, but, um, but it, it, it all lines up with what's going on. I got the wrong one again. Matthew 20. Nope, that's not the right one. Well, you got Mike. I got, that's not the one I want. Nope, 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 nope. It's Matthew 21. Sorry, Mike. Matthew 21, verse 10 through 17. Uh, again, it, I'll just make it clear here. And it was come into, and when he's come into Jerusalem, the city was moved, saying, Who's this? Of course, this is the Palm Sundry triumphal entry that they're talking about there. And the multitudes that went before followed him saying, Hosanna in the son of David. Blessed is he that coming in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, he just rode in on the donkey, remember? When he came into Jerusalem, he made a right turn, headed straight for the temple. Amen? And he cast out all them that sold in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. That's what the temple's for. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they praised God and shouted with both hands and both feet, right? No, they looked for a way to kill him. Hey, they were sore displeased. That's not displeased. They were sore displeased. Verse 16, and he said unto them, Hearest thou these things? Or they said unto him, and Jesus said unto them, Yea, have you never read... Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfect praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. He had to leave town because the crowd was so big there was no place to rest inside Jerusalem. It was only room for worship there in that particular uh, place. I want to change that. There we go. All right. And so we find here that verse 10 the whole city was moved when Jesus came in. And they asked, who is this? They knew who it was. Amen. It was obvious. They'd been singing Hosanna all the way down the street. But now uh, 
verse 12 tells what Jesus did in the temple, pretty much the same thing he did three years earlier. And he overturned the, the tables and drove them out and the people that sold stuff there. You notice in this particular one, remember the first one, he had oxen and, and, and sheep in the temple. This one doesn't mention the oxen and the sheep. So they must have learned something, at least the oxen and the sheep sellers must have learned, hey, I'm not going to let him run them. It took us about a week and a half to catch all those cows and sheep after he run them out. You know, I don't know what the deal was, but they weren't back in there at this time. So uh, what, were the, what were the doves that they were selling for? Do you know what they were? Can I tell you? The doves were a poor man's sacrifice. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to have your Passover lamb sacrificed, it was to be for your family to have a lamb and sacrifice it, but it had to be a big family because you had to eat the whole lamb. Now, if you just had a few in your family, and, uh, you know, you, if there was more than, not, if there weren't four of you, you all couldn't get a leg of lamb because there's only four legs on a lamb. So if you had a small family, families would come together. Amen? And even if you couldn't come together as a family and afford a lamb, there was a section in the Old Testament law you could buy turtle doves. Now, they were real cheap. You know, you could buy them with a coupon, just like you do at Kroger. Get an extra one. Buy one, get one free. They're really cheap, and that was the poor man's sacrifice. Amen? So, nonetheless, even though Jesus was, if you would, impressed by their worship or thinking of, I want to offer a sacrifice to God for what I've done, um, he wasn't impressed with, how they went about purchasing what they sacrificed. So uh, in verse 13, let me read that real quick. It said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. Well, where is that written at? Well, you can go back where we read it to you from the beginning of the service. But the real problem here is you'll read about that, of course, out of Jeremiah 7 and John the second chapter. But more importantly, is what happened in verse 14. What happened? Oh, the blind and the lame came to him, and he healed them. Wow. How would you like to go to a service where everybody come in was sick, and the Holy Spirit moved on the congregation, and everybody left doing cartwheels? Huh? That's what happened. You would have thought even the chief priests and the scribes could rejoice in the fact that those healings took place. But no, verse 15 says, they were sore displeased. They weren't happy about it a bit. Amen. And I would tell you, even in Jesus' day, the temple worship leadership was out of step with God's plan. They were upset that miracles were being done and that the children wanted to be in the church and even be close to Jesus. Hmm, isn't that terrible? We got children in the church. I tell you, they probably got crayon marks on the wall. Oh, that would be terrible. We need to ban children from the church, shouldn't we? Amen. They might even spill the glue 
and now the table's stuck to the floor. Well, get a jackhammer and break it loose and bring in more kids is what I say. We need more children in the church, not less. Amen. In Mark the 11th chapter, we're going to read a little bit more, but now this one in Mark 11 is basically the same thing that I just read to you out of Matthew's gospel. The, the, uh, the cleansing of the church is written in three of the four gospels, and of course John includes the cleansing of the church at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So all four gospels felt that cleansing the church was important. But in Matthew 11, it says in verse 15, it came, they came to Jerusalem, that's Jesus and the disciples. Jesus went into the temple, began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the table of the money changers and the seat of them that sold doves. Again, no mention of the ox or the sheep here. That was in the cleansing three years earlier. They must have learned their lesson, huh? He said, and he would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. Wonder what's in the vessels that they would be carrying through the temple. Any vessel. Hmm. Well, I don't know. It doesn't say. But he doesn't want anybody running a farmer's market in the outskirts of the temple. I don't know what they're bringing to sell, uh, but that's not what he wanted done in the temple. And we're just lucky to get Girl Scout cookies. Amen. But here in verse 17, again, I want to read it. And he taught saying them, it is, is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So here we find again the same scenario as to what was going on in the other gospel of, Mar of, uh, of Matthew. And he tells them, is it not written? Haven't you read it? You should have read it before. It's happened before. This is nothing new what I'm telling you when I cleanse the house. And he says, yep, my house, he calls it. Oh, did you notice that? Huh, verse 17, my house. Now, where is it written? Well, it is written in the Old Testament. It's written other places, but it says God's house. And now he's making it my house. Amen. When you talk about where you go to church, do you say, I go to my church is, or do you go to the church at? Amen. Make it personal. It's your church just as much as anybody else's that wants to abide by the, the rules and worship here. Amen. I'd advise you all next week to bring a visitor with you. They can call it their church if they want. But Jesus says, this is my house. Amen. And it's written. Uh, what that I, Now uh, that it's my house, I'm making, if you would, the rules. Because God said uh, the same thing. And it's all on the same level, if you would, that Jesus wants to do what his Father's will is as he's cleansing the temple. Verse 18, look, and, uh, look who heard what they said. And yet, at that moment, was quiet. But inside, they were piping mad. 
the scribes and the Pharisees. Man, oh man, I could just see them. They were sitting there just like a washing machine. On the outside, they were just, but on the inside, they were boom, 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 boom. Turmoil, and oh, they were having it out on the inside. They couldn't wait to get rid of Jesus. They wanted to get him out of town so fast they didn't know what to do about it. And they were always upsetting. He was coming to town to upset all their worship services. Man, doing things in the worship service like healings and miracles. What's wrong with that guy? Come on. Well, they had their wrong agenda. And again, they're sideways with the things that God had for them to do. In Luke's gospel, we want to read, well, I don't know whether we'll read it. We'll look at one more. It's basically uh, the same thing in Luke 19, verse 41 to 47. And, of course, I'm, I broke in here a little bit, and it's talking about Jesus as he's coming into town. The scripture here says, And when he was come near... He beheld the city, and he wept over it. Hmm. His heart was broke. You know why? Well, he spells some of it out here. At verse 45, he knows what he's going to face when he gets to the temple. That broke his heart. It said, if, I, if, it, if thou hast known... Even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in these one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the day of thy visitation. We know that in A.D. 70, that came to pass. They destroyed Jerusalem completely. Now, I heard a story. Um, we would think you would consider the temple destroyed if you just went in and took everything out of it that meant something or maybe burn it or did whatever, set fire to it or, or whatever. But here it says not one stone will be left upon another. And I had heard, now it's been a long time ago that I heard this from a fellow and I don't remember where he got his information. But he said when Solomon built the temple, between the bricks, he put the mortar in there to hold them together, he added gold to each one of that mortar between the bricks and they took every stone of that apart just to get the gold. And it fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus said every stone would be taken away. And I've even heard they really can't tell you exactly in Jerusalem today where the temple was. Now you can go over there and they'll give you a guided tour and tell you but they can't tell you exactly because it was destroyed so badly that archaeologists can't even find where the temple was. Yet today in Jerusalem, go over there, take a tour if you can afford it, 
you got a passport and your vaccination stats up to date and wear a mask you don't want to hurt nobody's feelings go over there they will let you take a tour of what they call the Jerusalem but they'll find out that every time there's a war in Jerusalem and one fashion or one group of people win they go in and take out all the stuff that the Jews want there and then another, the Jews come back and win and they come back and throw out everything that the other people brought in whatever it was. He, I've heard that from brother the what's the brother that came with uh, Bagan from India oh, I can't think of his name anyway he went over there and he told me that for sure every time somebody takes over that portion of the country they throw out all the traditions and everything of the worship of those people and put theirs in. But they're only in power for about 40, 50 years, and then they throw theirs out, and it, uh, he said it's an up and down constant thing. But that's neither here nor there, if you would, but I just thought it was interesting when I heard it. I thought I'd pass it on. But in verse 45, here when Jesus goes into the temple, he began to cast out them that sold therein. And he said unto them, It's written... Of course, we already read that. My house shall be a house of prayer, and ye've made it a den of thieves. Amen? So here Luke, he gives us, if you would, the heart of Jesus as he heads to the temple, and he probably realizes that in about 40 years, that temple's going to be destroyed. So the zeal of all of that probably was something that was stirring within Jesus to begin with. It says he wept, so he's probably upset about it. Um, so when uh, he comes to the cleansing part of that temple, now we see that all four of the Gospels cover the same, if you would, territory. But this time, Luke adds that Jesus taught daily in the temple without the merchandising distractions and the robbing of the money changers and the tax collectors in the background, Jesus had a free reign to worship. That's what he taught in verse 47. And he taught daily in the temple. Huh, how about that stuff? Hmm, that's a good thing, isn't it? And the chief of the people sought to destroy him. So in conclusion, we have the Jesus cleansing the temple it's twofold. Jesus wants true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's exactly what Jesus told the woman at the well in John 4, verses 23 and 24. Those that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. And secondly, we need to do away with all the worldly distractions that hinder true worship when we're in the house of God. What would that be? Amen. I heard a joke one time. A guy talking about it. And well, money's the biggest distraction. Then one about clothing. Do you hear this woman talking to her husband on the way home in the car? Said, did you see what sister so-and-so's hair looked like? He said, no, I didn't notice. Did you see the other sister on the other side that Wore that dress she had on? No, I didn't notice that. Oh, did you see what that other girl that just came, what she was wearing? No, I didn't notice that. Said, what in the world do you go to church for? Well, 
That's not what it's about. It's about worshiping God. Sometimes money, clothing, pride, egos, we need to check all that at the door and worship God in the house that he's given us, the house of prayer, and do it with thanksgiving. Amen. And remember, Jesus said it. How did he say it? He never said it'd be easy, just worth it. Amen.